Too many things open. Uh, one of the great parts of high school scripture classes are the questions students ask about God and about his world. In fact, each lesson we give a prize for the best question. Uh, and occasionally we get some difficult ones, but the one that keeps coming up again and again in different sorts of ways is this one. If God is good and powerful and wise, then why is the world so full of pain and suffering and injustice? The world's a bad place. Why doesn't God do something? Uh, Students ask it uh, because they've been abandoned by their father or abused by a family member or let down by the system and they just want answers. But it's not just students, of course. Uh, It's a question people the world over are asking. They've been asking for a long time. Maybe it's because of a, a major natural disaster, a tsunami or an earthquake. Uh, or maybe it's a terrorist attack that makes people ask the question. Or maybe it's a whole lot more personal. A baby dies. A family member suffers a terrible injury. There's a bushfire, a car crash or an accident. And people keep asking the same question. If God is good and powerful and wise, why is the world full of pain and injustice and suffering? It's such a bad place, why doesn't God do something? Where's the justice? Why is it that good people suffer and bad people just get away with it? Uh, Now these chapters about Noah and the flood, they don't answer the question completely, but they begin to. Uh, They tell us something about God, what he's like and how he works. And they tell us something about the nature of mankind. You might might remember last week in chapters 4 and 5 we found out about how things had gone from bad to worse, how Adam and Eve were forced from the garden but their children just grow in their pride and their wickedness. And here at the start of chapter 6 we see that things have got even worse still. In the first uh, four verses there's a description of a few things that are pretty difficult to understand but the point of them is clear and you can see the point there in verse 5. Things are in such a mess that God's just going to wipe everything away and begin afresh. Verse 5, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he'd made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth for I'm grieved that I've made them. You can feel his disappointment and despair it feels like it's time for a fresh start, it's time to take out the rubbish and begin with something new. But notice in those few verses that we learn quite a lot about God. First up, we learn that God sees. He doesn't just see evil actions, but he sees evil thoughts as well. God is omniscient. He sees and knows everything. Now that's a pretty scary thought if you have something to hide and if we're honest, that's all of us. Secondly, we see that not only does God see but he's actually interested in what he sees. He's not distant and isolated and indifferent. And once again, that's either comforting or scary depending on what you think about God, that he's interested. But one step further, not only is he interested, he's emotionally involved in his creation. A scientist might be interested in bugs or rocks 
but generally there's not an emotional connection with bugs or rocks. They don't love them. But God is actually affected by his creatures. We can influence God's emotions. That's a pretty amazing thing to realise. Firstly, on the negative side, we find out that he's grieved at wickedness. His heart's filled with pain. That's a pretty terrible thing if you're the one who causes the wickedness. But on the flip side, it's actually a comforting thing, isn't it, if you've been on the receiving end, uh, when you've suffered or you've experienced injustice, to recognise that God also grieves at the pain that you suffer. God's heart aches to see our misery. But that's not all. On the positive side, uh, have a look at verse 8. Not only is God grieved, but verse 8, Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. God grieves at sin, but he also rejoices in some of his creatures. It's possible to please God. Uh, We sometimes think of God as that parent uh, for whom nothing is ever good enough. You can never, you'll never get their approval. They're always shaking their head or they're always disappointed in you. But the reality is he's more like the parent who watches his toddler learn to walk. Uh, it might be one or two stumbling steps and dad is proudly watching. And the toddler falls down and as toddlers always will, but when he falls he's swept up in loving, uh, the loving arms of an accepting father. He's a father who's pleased with how well his child is doing, even if he's only toddling. That's what a heavenly father is like. He's actually pleased with Noah. Well, the fourth thing we see about God from just these few verses is that he's a God who acts. Uh, He's actively involved. He creates, we've seen that. He sustains, we've seen that. He moves, he disciplines, he guides... And in these verses we see that he judges and he destroys. He's like the potter who's thrown a pot but it's too thin or it's too short or it's crooked and he's made it so he's got the right to just put his fist into the clay and squash it back into a lump and start all over again. And that's what God's going to do. Well, that's God. What do we learn about mankind? Well, if you look back at verse 5, it's a pretty damning portrait of how low humans have sunk. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Action and thought, completely turned away from God, seeking evil instead, every inclination, all the time. There's nothing redeeming at all. There's nothing worth saving. Mankind had reached the bottom of the pit. They deserve nothing less than total destruction. It's the only just thing. Anything less would be injust, uh, injustice. This year marks, marked the 30th anniversary of the Port Arthur Massacre. I don't know whether you realise that or not. Most of you are too young for, to remember Port Arthur. Uh, but Port Arthur was when Martin Bryant killed 35 people. I found out, as I was uh, having a look on the the news about this, that he's actually currently serving 1,035 years without parole. That's a long time. And the reality is there's no way he's actually going to live that long. 
But I don't think there's anyone who thinks that that's unfair. There's nobody who thinks, oh, that's too tough. A thousand years, that's too tough. I think everyone says, that's justice. A thousand years. You never get released when you kill 35 people. And there's probably a whole lot of people who would say that that's not enough, that somehow he needs to pay more for what he's done. And that's sort of what God's saying here. It's thoroughly deserved. God's actions seem extreme, they seem severe, but they're just because the crimes are so terrible. Now, if we're honest, that's not the sort of God that uh, we just want to go out and shout about in the street. Most people uh, that we meet aren't interested in a God like that, a God who expects purity and goodness and perfection, who calls people to account and who demands justice. In fact, it's one of the problems people against scripture in schools have with the sort of message that we're delivering. Uh, They've got a problem that we teach that kids need saving from God's judgement. And they think, that's objectionable, that's horrible. We, We don't want you telling our children that God is going to judge them and they need saving. But that's unashamedly the picture the Bible's presenting. But it's not all bad news, of course. Uh, as, as we've already seen through Genesis a few times already, uh, mixed in with God's judgment is sprinkled salvation, grace, deliverance. It's the same thing again here because there was one man that God rescued, one family who he'd used to bring about a fresh start. Verse 8, Noah found favour in the eyes of God. He was righteous, blameless, he walked with God and notice that walking with God, that's what God did back in the garden. This is what man was actually designed for, to walk with God. And Noah's doing it. Many of us know the story. God tells Noah to build an ark. He and his family, Noah does everything that God tells him to and then he fills it with two of every kind of animal. And then for good measure we're told to put in, he's told to put in seven pairs of every clean animal. In chapter 7, verse 11, the rains start, the springs under the, the ground open and the water begins to rise and it keeps rising until even the tallest mountains were covered. And then verse 21, every living thing that moved on the earth perished. And down at the end of verse 23, only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. We're not told much about what was going on inside the ark, but outside, well, it's total annihilation. And then if we jump ahead to chapter 8, months later the waters recede, the ark runs aground, and then down in chapter 8, verse 15, God tells Noah to open the doors and come out and together with all the animals and it's time to begin again. And in 8.17, bring out every kind of living creature that's with you, birds, animals, creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. Does it sound familiar? It's Adam and Eve again, isn't it? Uh, Be fruitful and multiply and go out and fill the earth. And then in verse 20, Noah offers a sacrifice to God and we're told that God smells the pleasing aroma. Uh, And he promises that he's never again going to destroy by flood all living creatures. God's pleased with how things are turning out, uh, just like he was in Genesis 1. 
And so we can't help wondering, is this going to be a happily ever after? Is this mankind and God actually at peace? Is this the fresh start that will actually last? Well, it doesn't take too long for our hopes to be dashed. We, we don't even have to move past Noah. The familiar pattern repeats again. God's action. Fellowship, then sin, then judgement with grace, then more sin. Jump down to chapter 9 and verse 20. It's a funny little story. Noah's come out of the ark. There's some familiar aspects to it though. Noah plants some vines. Grapes grow. He picks some grapes and he makes some wine and he gets drunk and he lies around in his tent naked, as you do. And then we're told that Ham, who is the father of the people of Canaan, we're told he saw his father's nakedness. But we're also told that his other two sons, Shem and Japheth, they do the honourable thing and they cover up Dad without looking. They sort of put their blanket inside the tent door and throw the blanket across him. And then when Dad sobers up and he finds out what's happened, he curses Ham. It's a strange story. What's it there for? Well, we've got fruit, we've got nakedness, We've got shame. It's just like Adam and Eve. More of the same pattern. Another example of humanity, even humanity as blameless as Noah, who messes up. And so the pattern continues. More sin. More people who need saving. Someone to rescue them from judgement. And so we come to the end of the story of Noah. So what do we learn? Well, we began with the question, why doesn't God do something about all the evil and suffering? Well, here's the answer that the story of Noah gives. Why doesn't God do something? Well, he has. He did. And what's more, he will do something because of who he is. He's a God who sees, who's interested, who despairs and who acts. He did something, he's already destroyed evil once and Jesus himself tells us that God will do it again. If you're a quick flipper, flip over to Matthew chapter 24. It's sort of in the New Testament, it's about the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 24 verse 37. And it's one of the few places in the New Testament that talk about Noah. We're going to look at both of them, I think. Uh, Matthew chapter 24 verse 37. And Jesus is talking about his own return and how it's a little like Noah. Matthew 24, verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Back with Noah, no one expected it. Things were going on just like normal. Right up until the time the rain started to fall, at which point it was too late and God's judgement had begun. People want to know why God doesn't do something. And Jesus' answer is that he has and he will. And what's more, you better be ready. 
Jesus warns you. That's how it's going to be at the coming of the Son of Man. Make sure you're ready. You don't know when it's going to come. A bit further on, chapter 25 of Matthew, chapter 25, verse 31, he's telling a parable about the sheep and the goats, describing what actually is going to happen on that day when the Son of Man comes. It won't be rains and flood and drowning. It'll be something far worse. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in his heavenly glory. 25.32 All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Judgment. Only two options. Eternal fire with the devil and his angels or eternal inheritance in a kingdom prepared since the creation of the world. That's the fate for all of us. Without exception, there is no third option, there is no fence to sit on. Those who get away with it, uh, those who are getting away with it now, they will receive justice. They're the goats, off on Jesus' left. Those who deserve reward will be rewarded. Jesus says, God's done it once so we can be confident. We can take comfort in the face of suffering that he's going to do it again. But more than that, we can warn people about it and we can point to Noah as evidence of that. But not everyone thinks like that. For many people, they think Noah. They either don't believe in Noah or else they think, well, it's been thousands of years. God's just gone away and he's forgotten all about us. He's just taking so long. And so they're concerned about whether God knows. Does God really know what we're going through? Does God really care what we're going through? Or maybe he's not powerful enough to do anything about it. But the Apostle Peter says it's none of those reasons. God's not being slow because he doesn't care or because he can't act. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, it's almost up the end of the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, Peter mentions Noah as well. And once again he says, God's done it once, he's going to do it again. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 5. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 5. By God's word the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. That's creation. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God's judged once, he's going to judge again. But then look at what Peter says next. Here's why God is holding off judgment. But don't forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's justice will come, but he also wants to show mercy. He could wipe out us all tomorrow, tonight. But he wants to show mercy. He wants as many people as possible 
to come to him to be saved and so he's holding off judgment. Justice mixed with grace as always. Sometimes a library declares an amnesty on overdue books. They say fines will be cancelled. Just bring the book back. There'll be no penalty. Maybe people are holding on to the book at home because the fines got up to $50, $60, $70 and they don't want to take the book back. But the library figures the books are more important than the fines. We just want the books. So they'll say, we'll cancel your fines. And God's done the same thing for us. He's declared an amnesty on returning sinners. Come back to me. You've been gone so long. I'll cancel all the fines. I'll forgive them. All debts will be cancelled. The offer's open now but it won't be open forever. Act now before it's too late. Getting sinners back is more important to God than penalties being paid. That's what God offers. It's an offer that demands a response. Have a look at what Peter says, uh, verse 11 of 2 Peter 3, how we should respond. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, What kind of people ought you to be? He's a good preacher, isn't he? There's the theory. What's the practice? What's the application? What sort of people should you to be if judgment's coming? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And then down in verse 14. Dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. That's the message for us from the story of Noah. God has acted once, he will act again. So we should live in the light of the coming judgement. And when our friends ask us questions like, well, why doesn't God do something? Where is he? We can answer with some of the things that we've talked about tonight. That God has acted and God will act. But don't forget to remind them that the reason God hasn't done something yet is because he's showing them grace. He's offering them forgiveness. He's offering an amnesty, waiting for them to come home. They need to make a personal response to the news that God will act. God has done something. He's destroyed the earth once and he sent Jesus to buy us the forgiveness so that we can escape the judgement that's coming. That's the answer to the question of why doesn't God do something. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might help us to live in the light of your coming judgement. We thank you that you are a God who sees the pain and the injustice that we experience does not go unnoticed by you. Just because fire doesn't rain down on those who are guilty, it's not because you don't see or you don't care. It's because you're patient and you long to show mercy. We pray that you might show mercy to those people we know who don't know you yet, to family members. Perhaps there are some here tonight, Lord God, who don't know you. We pray that you might help them to see who you are and who Jesus is and who they are, that they need you and that they might come to know you. 
We pray that you might help all of us to live holy and godly lives as we wait and long for Jesus to return. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.